21. And here we're going to see that Jesus has authority over the interpretation of Scripture. Let's look at this a little more closely, verses 21 and following. So they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. So let's pause here for a moment. So the they are the, the four disciples that he's called. So we're talking about uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John and Jesus. So the five of them have gone to Capernaum. And this is kind of a, a base camp, if you will, for ministry at Peter's home. We know this from the other Gospels. So this is where they are. They're in Capernaum. And the Sabbath came. So this would be the seventh day, the day that God's people worshipped until the resurrection of Jesus. Generally, that, that day switched from the, from, the, from the seventh day, from the Sabbath to the first day. So at this point, Jesus has yet to die, yet to be raised on the third day. So God's people are gathering on the Sabbath on the seventh day. And what would happen is that there would be a reading from the law. There would be a reading from the Torah, and then some rabbi would get up to speak and make comments on that passage, much like what we do today. So again, back to verse 21. So they've traveled to Capernaum, the Sabbath came, and Jesus comes in to teach in the synagogue after the the scripture has been read. And look at verse 22. The people were amazed at his teaching. Because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. It's interesting here, Mark makes no mention of what passage was read, or what Jesus said, or how he taught, or what his style. Mark's point that he wants us to take away is that Jesus has authority. He has authority over what's most important, the gospel, repent and believe, what is central in the Bible, in the New Covenant. He has authority over everyone's life, and he is now teaching in the synagogue in a way that no one else has ever taught. Because whatever passage was read, we don't know what it was, was likely about him. And here he is, teaching with this authority. The second person of the Godhead who has become a man to die for the sins of the world is in the synagogue teaching. Would you have liked to have been there? Uh, That would be better than having an ocean view uh, while you're preaching in Maui. To have Jesus exposit the Scriptures. And what Mark says is he, he taught with authority. He taught with authority. This is not what they were used to. So now we move into this, this area that, that sometimes we're not that comfortable talking about. Again, this theme of authority. So he's teaching. 23, look at verse 23. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, this is interesting. Right at the very beginning of verse 23, Mark uses this word. I've mentioned it numerous times. I'm going to mention it a lot more times. In Greek, it's the word uthus. It's used over 42 times in Mark's gospel, and it's translated a variety of ways, rightly. Uh, It means kind of different things in different contexts. But here, at the beginning of, of verse 23, it's translated by the NIV, just then, at that very moment. And so the careful reader here would recognize, okay, this is a guy who shows up at synagogue every week. Okay, he's been there before, but something like this has never happened. 
So just then, it is because the Messiah, the Son of God, is explaining the, script, the Scriptures that this man who's in the synagogue is possessed by an evil spirit and cries out. This isn't something he's done before, is the implication. It is because the Son of God is there, there is a confrontation, a spiritual battle, a power struggle that is about to go on. and It is happening just then because Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, has, has, has gone up. And the Spirit cries out. Verse 24, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Notice a couple things here. One is this demon is speaking on behalf of other demons. He's speaking, notice the plural pronoun there, us. What do you want with us? He's kind of a demonic representative, if you will, that has taken possession of this man and is engaging Jesus. And he's engaging him with truth. He says, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? He's identified who he is. He knows that part of Jesus' mission is to destroy death and to destroy evil and to destroy Satan and to destroy cancer and demons and possession and all of these things. He knows that as a representative of the demons. And so this demon is is engaging Jesus. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. There is... There is something to be taken away from uh, verse 24 here, and that is the reality that the demons, and this demon in particular, understands who Jesus is more than the people in the synagogue. They know who He is. Elsewhere, the New Testament tells us the demons believe and they shudder. They understand who He is. The people are confused. The disciples are confused throughout the Gospels. Even after Jesus has died and rose again, they're still confused. The demons are not confused. They know who he is. And they want to know what is going on. And he is trying, the demon is trying to engage and take over and win a victory here with Jesus. But look what happens. Verse 25. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. You see, in the first century and throughout most of history, people didn't struggle to believe in the demonic realm. They're not amazed that there's a demon possession thing going on. They're amazed that this man who just taught with authority, we're not sure who he is, has authority even over a demon like this. This is good news. Our God, our Lord is powerful. Do you know that, church? Are you with me today, church? He is powerful. He doesn't have to do a dance. He doesn't have to sprinkle incense. He doesn't have to call for a a backup. He he says, be quiet. You, You might even be able to translate this, shut up. This is a strong statement. It's an imperative. Come out of him. And it comes out. And the people witness this. 
So our, our God has authority over the demonic realm. He is wanting us to see, the Holy Spirit is wanting us to see in Mark chapter 1, the authority over Jesus, over the gospel, over our lives, over scripture, and especially over the demonic realm. That's really the emphasis right, right here. And news, because of this, spreads quickly all over the region. So the, I want to say that the demonic realm is as real today as it is in the first century. My experience in our country, even on our continent, especially in the uh, U.S. and Canada, is that demonic activity tends to operate a, a, a differently than it does in other parts of the world. We tend to toward unbelief and a denial of the entire supernatural realm. This seems to be an effective strategy of the evil one that is working in our nation. But for example, if you travel to Africa or other places, some of you have. Is there a denial of the supernatural realm and evil there? Those of you that have traveled, there are witch doctors and there is clear evidence of demonic powers in, in, in incredible ways. And so the demonic realm is, is as real today as it is in the first century. A definition here of, of uh, well, before we get there, back to this text for a second. Let me uh, read. One commentator writes this. He says, it is appropriate that as an agent and teacher of magic, the unclean spirit in this context of the synagogue should try to use it on Jesus. The unclean spirit's knowledge of Jesus an attempt to use that knowledge in self-defense reached their peak in the statement, I know who you are, this, the Holy One of God. There, there, there is a, a battle that has gone on here. And he's identifying who Jesus is, the Holy One of God, the Son of God. Mark's audience would recognize that this unclean spirit has everything to lose by a false identification, which would ensure a failure of the defensive maneuver. The first identification, Jesus the Nazarene, was true enough, and so also is the Holy One of God. What the demon is saying is actually right and is true, even in opposition to everything that God and Jesus is about. So, uh, here's our definition. Demons are evil angels who sinned against God and who now continually work evil in the world. And I'm making the argument that there seems to be some kind of territorialness when it comes to demons and how they operate. And in America, by and large, it seems that the demonic realm mostly works toward through people like this lady at the beginning and others uh, of, of a culture of unbelief and denial of the supernatural realm. But that doesn't mean that there aren't extraordinary things that happen. And I want to uh, tell you about one in just a moment. Uh, but again, uh, Grudem goes on, he says, there is no reason to think that there is any less demonic activity in the world today than there was at the time of the New Testament. We are in the same time period as God's overall plan for history, uh, the church age or the new covenant age. And the millennium has not yet come when Satan's influence will be removed from the earth. From a biblical perspective, the refusal of modern society to recognize the presence of demonic activity today is simply due to people's blindness to the true nature of reality. And as I've been saying, I think that last sentence there is a lot of what we see in America, but it isn't all of what we see in America. 
And so what I want to do now is share with you someone's specific example who has seen things perhaps unlike what many of us have seen, even in America. Uh, so I've already said this, the demonic realm is as real today as it is in the first century. And this is the guy that I want to read to you what he's written. His name is Richard Gallagher. He's a believer. He's a physician. He's a professor of psychiatry. He's also a practicing psychiatrist. And this guy has been called on by Catholics and Protestants and a variety of church leaders to help distinguish between demonic activity and mental illness. And I want to read to you about what he writes about this. This is kind of lengthy, so I want to make sure you're with me. Are you with me, church? You're with me today. All right. I think you're with me. So here's what he writes. So he's contacted, this is years ago, um, this article is actually just recent, July 1st. This is just a a few days ago, uh, this article. But years and years ago, he's contacted the first time by a Catholic priest for for help. And, And this is I'm just going to read you part of this article, but this is where he begins. So listen, he says, I was inclined to skepticism when this priest contacted him to help him. Is this mental illness or is this demonic? He goes on, he says, but my subject's behavior exceeded what I could explain with my training, with his medical training. She, this person that the priest has has, uh, brought to his attention, the the patient, you will, or the person that's possessed, she could tell some people their secret weaknesses such as undue pride. She knew how individuals she'd never known had died, including my mother and her fatal case of ovarian cancer. Six people later vouched to me that during her exorcisms, they heard her speaking multiple languages, including Latin, completely unfamiliar to her outside of her trances. This was not psychosis. It was what I can only describe as paranormal activity. I concluded that she was possessed. Much later, she permitted me to tell her story. For the past two and a half decades and over several hundred consultations, I've helped clergy from multiple denominations and faiths to filter episodes of mental illness, which represent the overwhelming majority of cases from literally the devil's work. It's an unlikely role for an academic physician, but I don't see these two aspects of my career in conflict. The same habits that shape what I do as a professor and psychiatrist, open-mindedness, respect for evidence, and compassion for suffering people, led me to aid in the work of discerning attacks by what I believe are evil spirits and, just as critically, differentiating these extremely rare events from medical conditions. He raises this question now. Is it possible to be a sophisticated psychiatrist and believe that evil spirits are, however seldom, assailing humans? Most of my scientific colleagues and friends say no because of their frequent contact with patients who are deluded about demons, their general skepticism of the supernatural, and their commitment to employ only standard peer-reviewed treatments that do not potentially mislead or harm vulnerable patients. But careful observation of the evidence presented to me in my career has led me to believe that certain extremely uncommon cases can be explained no other way. Unfortunately, not all clergy involved in this complex field are as cautious as the priest who first approached me. In some circles, there is a tendency to become overly preoccupied with putative demonic explanations and to see the devil everywhere. Have you known people like that? People that see the devil everywhere. 
So he's saying that exists, and that complicates why we kind of can kind of uh, kind of get nervous when this whole subject comes up because of those people. He goes on. I have personally encountered these rationally inexplicable features along with other paranormal phenomena. My vantage is unusual. As a consulting doctor, I think I have seen more cases of possession than any other physician in the world. Most of the people I evaluate in this role suffer more suffer from the more prosaic problems of the of medical disorder. Anyone even faintly familiar with mental illnesses knows that individuals who think they are being attacked by malign spirits are generally experiencing nothing of the sort. Practitioners see psychotic patients all the time who claim to see or hear demons. Histrionic or highly suggestible individuals such as those suffering from disassociative identity syndromes and and patients with personality disorders who are prone to misinterpret destructive feelings in what exorcists sometimes called a pseudo-possession via the defense mechanism of an externalizing projection. This is what this woman at the beginning of my sermon is, is basically saying all of it is. It's basically pseudo-possession is what she was saying. But he goes on, he says, but what am I supposed to make of patients who unexpectedly start speaking perfect Latin? As a man of reason... I've had to rationalize the seemingly irrational questions about how a scientifically trained physician can believe such outdated and unscientific nonsense as I've been asked have a simple answer. I honestly weigh the evidence. I have been told simplistically that levitation defies the laws of gravity, and well, of course it does. We are not dealing here with purely material reality, but with the spiritual realm. One cannot force these creatures to undergo lab studies or submit to scientific manipulation. They will also hardly allow themselves to be easily recorded by video equipment, as skeptics sometimes demand. As a psychoanalyst, a blanket rejection of the possibility of demonic attacks seems less logical and often wishful in nature than a careful appraisal of the facts. As I see it, the evidence for possession is like the evidence for George Washington's crossing of the Delaware. In both cases, written historical counts with numerous sound witnesses testify to their accuracy. He is one of the witnesses himself, this man. And I'm just about done here with the article. He says, in the end, however, it was not an academic or dogmatic view that propelled me into this line of work. I was asked to consult about people in pain. I've always thought that if requested to help a tortured person, a physician should not arbitrarily refuse to get involved. Those who dismiss these cases unwittingly prevent patients from receiving the help they desperately require, either by failing to recommend them for psychiatric treatment, which most clearly need, or by not informing their spiritual ministers, spiritual leaders, that something beyond a mental or other illness seems to be the issue. For any person of science or faith, it should be impossible to turn one's back on a tormented soul. So I want us to hear from people like that. Are you thankful that we have believers uh, like this guy working out his faith, living out the calling that God has given to him and not falling into this, this trap of denying everything while recognizing that there is a lot of pseudo-possession going on out there? I'm thankful for him. I'm thankful that something like that would even be published in a secular piece. So the last thing I, I want to do today is is have us to be encouraged in in this realm. Believers, though impacted by demonic attacks, need not fear them because Jesus' authority to rebuke them has been given to us. We're going to look at a passage in just a moment. 
And the, what the New Testament teaches is that we have authority not because we have experience in exorcism or because we have some kind of uh, certain kind of oil or magic dust to use, but because we have Jesus in us. It is the authority of Jesus Christ alone that is authoritative over demons, and he has given this to his disciples. We see this, for example, in Luke chapter 10. The 70, after he had sent them out, the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And he said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a lightning flash. Look, I have given you the authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing will ever harm you. However, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, the evil spirits, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You see the emphasis there? The emphasis isn't, hey, I'm an exorcist, look at me. Look at the power I have. The emphasis is, my name is written in heaven. The power that any power that I have comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not rejoicing that they submit, but that, my, that God, for some reason, in his grace, has called me into his fold. And I'm a child of God. Much like Andrew and Peter and James and John who were called early on. I'll share one testimony with you before we finish up here of my own in this. Our previous congregation received a phone call at about 2 o'clock in the morning. And when the pastor's phone rings at 2 o'clock in the morning, it's usually an accident, a car accident. Someone has died or someone is near death. And I'm often on my way to an ICU or an ICU waiting room. This was many years ago. The phone rings at 2 o'clock in the morning. We're trying to get uh, oriented here and uh, have a conversation, which is hard for me in the middle of the day. Um, But um, it's even harder at 2 o'clock in the morning. And what's on the other end of the line is a family asking for me to come and pray. This is a family that took in distressed teenagers, had a big ranch and property, asking me to come and pray because there is a young lady there who is possessed by a demon. I haven't had too many of those calls, but this call came, and so uh, ministry is a team sport. I call one of my uh, partners and leaders in ministry, and we get in the car, and we drive uh, across the countryside to go to this this person's home, and there's been all kinds of activity there. It's the middle of the night, and there's a a woman, young teenage girl, a teenage girl uh, on the ground making all kinds of noises, and it's, it's it's a pretty terrible scene. I share this with you not because uh, to, to impress you or, or to give anything. I, I never, I've never really done anything like that before or since. But I'm sharing this with you because I went there in the confidence and power of Jesus to pray for this girl. Now, what exactly happened? I have to be honest. I'd like to tell you some incredible thing happened and, and she was completely healed. I'm not exactly sure what was going on there. I'm not sure if it was a pseudo-demonic thing or if it was a demonic thing. But what I know is that the power of God was with us and we had authority not because of who we are or because of our spiritual maturity or because I have a title of pastor, but because Jesus was with me, I'm able to go and pray in his name and have authority not because of me, but because of him. And so we went and prayed and, 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 things, and things went better that night. And I share this with you to say, uh, you don't need to fear any demonic dream or activity, or if you're called upon to pray for someone, the Lord will be with you and enable you to do that. Can you receive that, church? 
Can you receive that? We don't need to be afraid of this sort of thing. Closing, Matthew Henry writes this. He says, All our victories over Satan are obtained by power derived from Jesus Christ. We must in His name enter the lists with our spiritual enemies. And whatever advantages we gain, He must have all the praise. If the work be done in His name, the honor is due to His name. Let's bow our heads together and ask for Him to be honored. Lord, we, uh, we live in a country where we certainly see evil. Most of us don't see the kind of supernatural, demonic activity like this psychiatrist uh, that we heard from this morning through my reading his article. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to see and believe in the reality of what the Bible teaches regarding demons and their power and authority. But more than that, Lord, I pray that we would know that he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. And that if we ourselves have some kind of demonic attack or temptation or asked or called upon to enter into this kind of realm, that we can do so with confidence, trusting in Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit to go before us. God, we thank you for your word and we pray week in and week out, day in and day out, that the word of God would permeate our hearts and minds more than TV, more than our culture, our secular culture, more than academic people who end up having influences through all kinds of different media. Lord, help us to be yielded to the Holy Spirit and to be growing day by day in our knowledge of the Word of God. Help us and strengthen us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.